When not being overworked as a teacher under consecutive conservative governments, Dan McKee writes and produces music, creates and uploads articles to his blog Philosophy Unleashed, and aims to get the young students in his classroom engaged with the critical thinking skills in the hopes that they will be guided out of the metaphorical cave of state propaganda and capitalist realism, and it may just have worked on a couple students if you ask me. But as a political thinker, Dan McKee puts forward his arguments for why, if we sh should be faithful to the claims of democracy that so many of us make, we should look towards anarchist thought to how we should structure our social and political organisations in his recently released book, Authentic Democracy, An Ethical Justification of Anarchism. And today we discuss his book, Anarchist Thought, how anarchism can be applied to current affairs, and what we can do to transform our current democratic systems. To be charitable, we could say that anarchism is misunderstood, or in many cases, purposefully misconstrued. Out of all the political ideologies out there, it has a terrible branding issue to say the least. When the typical person pictures anarchy, they aren't filled with images of mass localised organisation or a strong federation of unions or guilds, but rather they are more inclined to envision riots, looting and burning buildings. Even in the recent BLM protests across Europe, and particularly in America, it was the anarchists that became a target for right-wing media outlets and even a scapegoat for the those on the left who blame the anarchists for derailing the movement with their utopian ideas or feuds with the police. But should we not be wary to lump those in with the theorists of the last couple centuries? Anarchism has a long and detailed history, from Proudhon and Bakunin to Kropotkin, Stirner and Goldman, and in a period where labels are thrown around with very little substance and thought behind them, can Dan McKee bring some answers to this field and make us question the fundamentals of a democracy everybody seems to be complaining about but nobody knows an alternative to? Welcome to the propaganda machine again and we are joined by our first ever interviewed guest Dan McKee welcome onto the show hello welcome <laughs> I said welcome it's your show but <laughs> so oh, yeah um uh, welcome to the show Dan McKee today we're going to be talking about your book Anarchist Thought and um yeah you just like to give us a simple introduction of who you are and what you do essentially on a day-to-day -day basis well not on a day-to-day -day basis but like what is your background in philosophy and politics specifically I mean, you just gave a great introduction, so um, I don't want to repeat myself, but yeah, um, essentially I uh, am a teacher uh, of philosophy and religious education, and I, on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm doing that, but uh, at night when school is over, I am thinking deep thoughts about philosophy, specifically anarchism, and uh, other things related to anarchism, and, and yeah, writing uh, books, articles, essays, blogs, and uh, my background comes from like any student of philosophy. You know, I did philosophy A-level, I went to university to study philosophy, and I was lucky enough to go to Cardiff University at a time when a guy called Andrew Belsey was running a course in the just introduction, sort of, you know, undergraduate first year uh, series of philosophy lectures, and it was a bit on political philosophy, and he had one lecture on anarchism. But that made me realise that the anarchism, which I was already interested in from like punk music, which used the word anarchy a lot and told me about anarchy was a thing, but I didn't really know what it was. And I started reading a bit of Noam Chomsky in the background and was starting to learn a bit. But his course sort of showed me there was a scholarly side of anarchism and that it was like a serious philosophical position and not just a sort of political idea that maybe punk bands over... Uh, stated so yeah so I, I took his course had a good reading list kept on reading ended up doing an undergraduate dissertation on anarchism uh, then did a, a master's thesis on uh, just war theory and the social contract and put those two ideas together really for my PhD which ended up becoming the book eventually which was sort of anarchism and social contract theory combined well then 
this is going to be a great discussion because there's been lots of people asking me about anarchism and about anarchist thought and since someone who's a student um and having the amazing experience of having you as a philosophy teacher for the past two years and a religious studies teacher before that and also being an anarchist professor or sort of person who specializes in that field this is a great opportunity but that being said, that amazing introduction, let's jump straight into the book. So for those of you who don't know, um, as I said, he wrote a book called An Ethical Justification of Anarchism, Authentic Democracy. It will be down in the description. Um, but let's just get straight into it. So from the first line, the very like opening, you say that, and this is your writing, legitimate politics is a necessarily ethical business. Structures of political power are not natural phenomena, but are artificially created human constructs that affect the lives of all those living within them. And that because of this, we must build an enduring ethical contract based off of a political teleology. But before we get into the nitty gritty of that, why is politics ethical? Can it not simply be logistical or sort of run like a business, maximizing the economy? economy or something else why is it an ethical business why do you claim it to be that well all the things you just said are i would argue ethical too i mean i i am quite inspired by a neo-kantian constructivist ethicist called honora o'neill and she talks about how you know when you're thinking about what you do as a person you should think about your uh, connection to other people the fact that there are other people you know there's a plurality of people in the world and that we're all sort of finite in what we're able to do and how we interact. So she says, basically, if you then think like that and recognize that truism about the world, kind of like Kant says, you should think about, you know, how if I did this, could everyone do it? I don't take it as far as Kant, and she uh, has her own views on Kant, but my, my feeling was we are connected, and when we do things, they affect other people. So anything we do that affects other people becomes ethical, and we need to think about that. And politics is a completely artificial construct over human life you know we are born and we die but whether there's a political structure around that is going to be a series of choices we make about the kind of society we want to live in and as soon as you choose to make a choice about well we should live like this or we should live like that that choice will affect other humans and therefore you've got to think is it a good choice is it a bad choice is it a right choice is it a wrong choice so politics in my understanding always is taking point at a, at a sort of post-ethical discussion. So there's lots of meta-ethical things about, you know, is, is there right and wrong? Should we think about that? How do you get an, an ought from an is? My view, and, I, and kind of this is why this came, actually. I, I did lots of talks about this when I was working on the thesis, and there would always be some dull ethicist at a conference who would want to not talk about anarchism or politics and just be like, well, you t you're assuming like you can get an ought from an is and let's talk about metaethics. And I basically wanted to make the point that, look, when you're doing political philosophy, you've kind of agreed on a very bare level that we are doing, we've got some ethical assumptions we can all agree to. And we might disagree on what a best society is or what a good society is and things like that. But we understand that we agree there is such a thing as a best or good society because that's what we're striving to do. If we're not striving to do that, there's no point in erecting any kind of politics. So for me, this idea of political teleology, which I think I might have invented, I don't know if it's a real thing. Um, I'm, I'm looking into it. I, I just, uh, I, I, I've recently published on my personal website an old essay uh, that was a, a talk I gave in 2007 about constructing a political teleology, because I think I might have invented it. But anyway, um, essentially the idea is teleology means there's a goal or a purpose. And my feeling is legitimate politics and obviously illegitimate politics is a different thing but if it's going to be legitimate because of ethics because of our connection and the plurality of people and all that sort of thing there's there's a goal to it 
the goal is whatever you want the goal to be, where, where you're going to say to someone, we ought to live like this instead of living like that. Hmm. And we could disagree on the goal. We can disagree on what the best way of achieving that goal is. But whatever your answer to the question of what politics should be, there is a political teleology of we're trying to achieve something and our belief is what we're doing is best, the best or the good life or the right way to be or something, which yeah. is ethical. So politics basically is necessarily ethical because when you're doing it, you've already got all these built in assumptions about ethics. Yeah. So it's interesting you talk about sort of that overarching teleology because you sort of work off of this fundamental axiom of legitimate politics. As you say, you say that political power is legitimated upon an understanding, either explicit or implicit, that it makes life better for people than it would be without it. So from what you said, I'm saying I'm essentially assuming that the sort of fundamental axiom that you see as sort of universal in political, in this post-ethical sort of discussion and arguments that we have is that when we are working in political organisation, when we're working in political structures, we're essentially trying to make um, the world better um, for the people within it. And it's the definitions of better and people that we work off of rather than the is or gap or, you know, whether there is a God that bestowed us with an innate moral sort of feature. Yeah, but all of that will, will feed into it. So if I believe there is a God and God has told us how we ought to live a life, then when we are making our society and trying to determine what's best for people, best would include probably uh, what God told us to do. And, and one of the things, um, again, Anora O'Neill does, also John Rawls, who is a bit of an inspiration for this, is this idea of constructivist ethics is basically an idea that says we are making up ethics but that doesn't mean that they're bad so as an anarchist i don't believe in authorities including god uh, so the idea that there are these sort of eternal laws out there that we must follow and things i i don't buy that myself but what i do buy is that there's a sort of logic that we can agree to or disagree to about what we ought to do or not to do based on you know factual reasons that we can agree on and because we can't all agree on religion you know even within a religion people disagree about what exactly god is saying let alone between religions and then there's the fact that there are people who don't believe in god and there are people who do believe in god in a society rules have this sort of idea of overlapping consensus needing to be reached within a pluralistic society and that we're basically when we're having public discourse we can't be bringing in ideas that are not publicly understandable by all so you know if i am a theist and i come along and say well my scripture says that this is what we ought to do that is only comprehensible to people who agree with my scripture. If you are from a different faith and you've got a different scripture which says different things, then it's not obvious that that's what we ought to do. And Rawls basically says, you know, we can try and um, make the case for our position in a way that everyone can agree to or understand, um, or we need to sort of bracket it out because it's, it's not something that's relevant in the public sphere. And so my feeling in terms of, you know, political teleology is you, you might include... Uh, religious views i i haven't for those reasons that i think that within what i describe in the book you can have religious views you can be religious um and you can have all kinds of deeply held personal beliefs but they shouldn't necessarily uh, influence what a society ought to be um unless we can sort of publicly and universally agree to them as the people under that politics now one nice thing about anarchism is it allows for all kinds of experimentation and personal choices and doing what you want. So within the society I describe in the book at the end, you know, religious people can still be there doing their thing and believing everything they want to believe as long as they don't violate, you know, any of the sort of very few minimalistic conditions of freedom. 
and even then they can do it just in a place where they all agree uh, that that's okay to do, if that makes sense. They just can't impose upon other people without free agreement. I understand that. So a legitimate politics has to sort of encompass that plurality of different backgrounds, different religions, and there has to be some sort of universal concepts that we can all fundamentally agree with before we can sort of engage in those practices. And even then, that universality doesn't deny those differences. As you said, someone can be a Christian and a Muslim in sort of your anarchist um, world that you envision, and they can live their different lives, their different individual philosophies. But the thing about politics is that politics encompasses this plurality, and therefore it has to sort of deny or exclude these sort of um, groups that are work on um, minorities of the larger entity yeah and, and rules is as this other idea of reflective equilibrium where you sort of when you're constructing your ideas and, and and figuring out what is legitimate what's allowed what's not what's you know reasonable the new information that you get as you do that means you then can look back at some of your old conclusions and see there's my cat look at some <laughs> of your old conclusions and see if they still make sense and sort of go back and forth reflectively until you reach an equilibrium of what is defendable. And so that's a good example. Like, you know, if I, if I come along and say, well, I don't believe in God. So a view that's based on God is one we shouldn't have in our society. I would suddenly discover that, well, there are lots of people who believe in God. That's not really a reasonable position. Okay. We now need to include uh, a freedom to believe in God, but also a freedom to not believe in God. So we need a level of freedom in this society where everyone has, you know, freedom of belief, free the right to believe what they want to believe. Um, but then you go, well, if you can believe what you want to believe, then I believe it's right to, you know, kill the firstborn of every family because I, I believe that a, a demon once made a deal with me that if I do that, I'll win the lottery. Um, I go, okay. That's a, that's a bad belief because that will violate all kinds of people's other freedoms and things because you also need maybe protection from harm and stuff like that. So when, when you start thinking going back and forth, you end up reflecting on you know where the limits might be. The important thing is they're not real limits. You know, there is no um, there is no like big set of rules in the sky on stone tablets where you, you either get it right or you get it wrong. You could have a society that you say, well, that is what we do. I, I am I don't think it's something you can defend. I don't think it's something that's morally legitimate. Um, but if you can make the argument for it, then maybe it is. From an anarchist position, it's kind of there's a political teleology, but there's multiple teleologies. You know, there are multiple goals, multiple things that people might think is the good life and is good. But therefore, if that is true, it means we need to create a space where people can explore all of those different teleologies. And in a political teleology on the project of politics, it would mean creating a society where it's possible for people to do all of those things. That totally makes sense. Um, and if we carry on, you sort of this talk about legitimate and illegitimate. You're sort of talking about the arguments there. Well, there might not be a fundamental um, sort of uh, moral realism to your political teleology. Um, you, you write this and say that an important distinction, and you try to make a distinction between legitimate and illegitimate politics, um, to be made between the concepts of objective legitimate authority and merely socially legitimated authority, is that illegitimate politics can be determined precisely because they are self-serving setups which fail to fulfil any legitimating ethical purpose which would distinguish themselves as justified. So what, can you sort of explain that and sort of articulate what are distinguishing features that separate the justified from the unjustified? Yeah, well, it's not justified, it's legitimate. So my, my, one of the big arguments in the book really is that ev everyone tries to justify their politics as being good. So if you do say that the point of politics is to make life better for people, that's how everyone will sell their version of politics. So if you're a Nazi 
and you're trying to sell a very, very clearly illegitimate, prejudiced, totalitarian system, you don't come along and say, hey, guys, vote for us. We're illegitimate and totalitarian and horrible. You say, do this, do that, because it's for the best of society. It's for the good of society. Let's demonize these people because they're the problem in our society. And if we can get rid of them, then we will have what is best for people. Because, by the way, they don't count as people in our society either. So it's still making that same argument. And that's kind of the point that I'm trying to make there is that propaganda and sort of ideological um, systems can make people believe things are justified or legitimate but just because people believe it doesn't mean that they are because when you do a bit of simple unpacking of say the nazi position you suddenly realize that what they're saying is not making life better for all the people in a legitimate defendable way for all because they've bracketed out a load of people who are actually people um, and decided that they're not people and actually the interpretation of better seems to really only apply to those in charge and things like that so what i'm saying in that thing about social perception of of you know just because things are justified and therefore there are some views of legitimacy that legitimacy that say basically if everyone agrees it's legitimate that's all you need and i'm trying to say well actually there's a load of things we think as a society are okay and we might be wrong about it i mean a good example is like eating meat um i'm a vegetarian I think it's morally wrong to eat meat. Um, now, I'm not saying that that's definitely true, but I'm saying we could conceive of a world where it turns out that it just was always wrong to eat meat. At the moment, vegetarians and vegans are a minority in our society. So just the fact that eat, eating meat is the majority socially approved, justifiable, legitimate thing to do doesn't necessarily mean that it is objectively the right thing to do. And it's very possible we could be wrong and subject to laziness of history and, you know, years of being marketed meat by the meat industry, by big meat. Um, so, you know, th th just because everyone agrees with something doesn't mean um, it's necessarily right, as you can see, really, in, in any democratic uh, current system. of yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, that's, that's what I was going to ask you, really, you know, like a common retort to sort of anarchist thinking as well. You know, you guys claim democracy and stuff, but we have these current systems. You know, people are voted in. You don't like Boris Johnson, but 40 percent of the country do. And in the current system we have, I mean, like, hey, that's just what we have to deal with. You know, people try to say that the left sometimes or sort of anarchists can be actually the real authoritarians because you guys want to disregard all of this democracy we currently have. And, and just impose your own views on it and ignore the sort of current voting systems we have because you know everyone every four years ticks a, a voting ballot and uh, the prime minister gets elected like what was so your response i guess is similar to that then in that those aren't necessarily well, legitimate there's more response i mean the book obviously is about what i call an authentic democracy and all i'll say about the current system say in the uk is this idea that it's democratic is is, is deeply questionable even on its own terms so let's say it's correct say you know, 52% vote for one thing and 48% vote for another thing. Um, let's say, it's, I know it's Brexit numbers, but it could be anything. So let's imagine it's it's Boris Johnson versus Jeremy Corbyn in the last election. That doesn't actually say, therefore, forget Jeremy Corbyn, totally change the Labour Party, get a different leader in place, and Boris Johnson gets to rule the country. That tells us that almost 50-50 believe radically different things in the country. That tells us that therefore there should be a negotiation of leadership. It's only within a hierarchical system, which is looking for a leader, and particularly in our country, first past the post, where it's like winner takes all, that such a very clear message from the public that it's like 
almost 50-50, there's 4% in it, those numbers only then become total rule by the winning side in a very undemocratic, unrepresentative of the people kind of way. At the same time, you've got this idea, not just of like, well, we've got a built-in hierarchy, so we translate the will of the people into leaders and losers, which shouldn't be the case, but you've then got the thing of like, what does it even mean to win an election? Because not everyone in the country votes. So if it is 52, 48, that is 52, 48% of maybe 30%, 40%, 60% of the population. It's the population of voters, which doesn't include children, doesn't include criminals in some cases. There's all kinds of people excluded from those numbers whose voices just are not heard. Um, so how are they even represented? And then there's the questions logistically of how are people represented? When I vote, you know, I live in a place, for example, with a Conservative MP, um, and I didn't vote for the Conservative Party, but I'm expected to, whatever my views are, to just sort of know that, well, my MP will not represent those views. You know, I write to my MP and say, you know, this is my feelings on this particular issue, and he'll write back and give me the Conservative Party line. He doesn't engage with my view, and really that's not representation, is it? That is pick a poison, and you have to go with what they have. And then in our country, with our first past the post, you don't even get a chance. Like it could, it could be the case instead of MPs, you know, ignore your local MP. You just talk to the the particular political party that represents your views, and then they send it to an MP of nearest fit to your constituency who can raise that issue for you. But we don't have that system. We've also got the party system, which is nothing to do with representation because representation should be let me and my population tell you what we want you to represent but instead we have them tell us here's our manifesto which one do you want to pick out of a limited array of choices mm. so all of those things without even going into what i would think is an authentic democracy just show us that calling something democracy doesn't make it democracy and a couple of thought experiments about well let's have the same system but actually do it democratically so we've got the exact same system but instead of parties existing we put up some ideas and get a local person to stand to represent that you know there are a particular uh, set of candidates we vote as a community on that they go to parliament we can still do the 52 percent 48 percent vote but then instead of there being a winning party and a leader we have right well that tells us that across the country there's a broadly um opposed kind of view on some major issues so we need to have some big negotiations and reach a compromise rather than go well we won by four percent so you know my feeling is again back to the original question we all call it democracy we're told it's democracy we're taught it's democracy in schools that doesn't make it democracy i understand that so a lot of the points you sort of bring up are essentially this sort of um when we get to the fundamentals of what democracy actually means democracy isn't this sort of just name or sort of icon that we label onto countries or sort of systems and we sort of say oh just because you vote then therefore it's democratic you say that there's fundamental sort of ethical and this goes back to even the first question there's fundamental ethical sort of requirements we need to meet if we want to be legitimate and we want to have an authentic democracy and in the book um, you sort of open it up with sort of social contract theory and sort of social contract theory in the 
the sort of sense that when we are creating sort of political structures, they seem to work off of, and you list people like Hobbes, Rousseau, Locke, Nozick and Rawls, who we'll get into shortly, of um, when we're legitimizing political structures, they have to work off of, as you said, this consistent sort of consent from the sort of state or from any authority to the sort of people or the wider um, represented or the wider um, organizations or sort of systems that they're representing um so why did you to get into social social contract theory and explain it a bit more why did you sort of start there what why was social contract theory the sort of focus of the largest chunk uh, chunk of your book yeah that's a good question i mean there's t- there's two reasons um one is sort of the 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 righteous philosophical reason of i think that's the starting point of the argument so we had to to cover it and i'll come back to that in a minute the, the, the other reason is more um, a propagandist reason, and I guess yours is the propaganda machine. <laughs> My feeling with, you know, wh- when I was studying politics at university, I studied philosophy and politics, and I found that, you know, if I spoke to anarchists, uh, anarchists knew about anarchism. If I spoke to Marxists, Marxists knew about anarchism. If you speak to radical people, radical people know about radical ideas. But if you go to any political philosophy course, whether I did it in my politics side of my course or in my philosophy side of my course, um, there's all kinds of you know standard arguments for legitimacy, for the state, for democracy that they get trotted out um, in these courses and by thinkers, um, usually based around the social contract theory, because democracy is essentially saying you know we are the real people who have the power, but there are pragmatic problems, so we give that power to an authority that we agree on, and there's a contract. You get authority if you do this, and we give you authority if you do that. So it's a you know two-way contract. So that sort of thinking was all I was hearing on these political philosophy courses and by political philosophical thinkers and in political philosophy books. And the assumption is democracy, 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 and a kind of a blind spot over the failings of our democracy and the possibilities of anarchism for authentic democracy. So my feeling when I was listening to all these arguments was, I don't need to write another book to tell anarchists why anarchism is great. Um, I need a book for these people who think they know about politics and political philosophy, who go through the standard arguments. You know, you'll find that array of social contract theories in many books on the origins of the state or the ideas of democracy. But what people don't seem to do is follow the the argument to its logical conclusion, which is that anarchism is authentic democracy and what we currently have is not democracy. They kind of stop their thinking and go, so therefore we need a democracy um, in in the current form. And so I kind of did it because I wanted to be speaking directly to a political philosopher um, who thinks that there is a, a framework of looking at the world and go your framework is a bit of an ideological um, trap sort of trap. Yeah. You, you, you maybe want to look out at that framework and see that, that these ideas can go further than you think um, in a way that, you know, it might be alienating to some readers who think, Oh, this is heavy duty philosophy, but then that's why I come to the set. The, the first point, so which is, I think it's philosophically relevant, which is, you know, to make my argument, I do believe it ultimately stems from if you're going to say, like anarchists do, humans have ultimate authority, we are autonomous individuals who could control themselves, no gods, no masters, that therefore goes, well, okay, who can tell me what to do? Is it just a free-for-all? And I don't believe it's a free-for-all. I still believe that within anarchism, we can choose to give people authority for limited uh, periods of time for particular jobs and things like that. So you've got to have some conceptualization 
of how an anarchist agrees to work together with people and share that autonomy. Um, so a version of the social contract is kind of inevitable, but it comes back to that Inora O'Neill thing. You know, once you recognise that we're in a political business, there's got to be some justification for why I can tell you what to do um, or you can tell me what to do and our, our government can tell us what to do. And it tends to be a social contract because essentially, like any contract, it is saying I have certain, you know, powers, rights, etc., responsibilities. I am going to allow you to do something on certain conditions and therefore there's terms. And if you don't meet those terms, you fail to meet the contract and your authority is illegitimate. Um, which is always the case in democracy. When you say we vote every four years, that's kind of supposed to be the point that we have a contract with our you know, powers that be, and if they fail, we vote them out. Um, so the social contract to me is inherent to all of these democratic systems. But also I think if you're an anarchist who's interested in how to work together with other people for slightly bigger projects than you could have in a small community, um, you'll need some conceptualization of a social contract. So that, those are legitimate reasons to sort of, the sort of marketing to a sort of wider scale because that is sort of a problem that we sort of have on the left. Uh, a lot of people, um, leftists seem to be sort of insular. Um, and sort of my experience, like, as I said, when I'm speaking to the communists or when I'm speaking to Marxists, we seem to agree on basic fundamental axioms and sort of um, being able to sort of speak with each other about like, oh, you know, like when, when it comes to leftists talking about why capitalism is terrible, you get pretty sort of universal agreement on there. But then when it sort of, I think even in wider political media, uh, when it gets to sort of speaking to other people um, and it sort of bring them over, you do get that sort of um, gap between a sort of someone's knowledge and someone else's knowledge, the sort of language being used, it can sort of be alienating. So I actually kind of do appreciate this sort of um, form of going through the social contract theory, which is maybe a bit more accessible to a wider audience and then sort of building it up to um, sort of an anarchist sort of framework and thinking but if we were to go into the sort of specifics that you sort of bring up in this sort of social contract theory um, you, you first state that like when people are talking about social contract theory you're again not talking about this contract that was actually written you're not talking about a piece of paper that was created by first societies um, nor should any sort of first society sort of bring um, sort of be a significant um, uh, and then you sort of go into Hobbes, Rousseau, uh, Locke, Nozick and Rawls. And I think the sort of main two ones that um, you sort of introduce us to Hobbes and Rousseau, um, sort of taking their arguments is, uh, is is interesting. And I kind of want to explore that. Um, so if you talk about Hobbes first, he sort of says that his argument essentially is that life is nasty, brutish and short. And we were in this sort of amoral state before the state was constructed, where we were forced to fight with one another to stay alive. And everybody was just a free for all against each other, which you, of course, dismissed. And he says, therefore, we should sort of give up that freedom to do all in um, favor for a state power that is the ultimate authority where he called the leviathan so that peace and order can be maintained now um some people sort of claim this to be almost like sort of proto-fascist by him but isn't this just hobbes facing the harsh reality that there is evil in the world that people can be very malicious to one another and we need uh, people to protect the vulnerable and maintain peace yeah, I mean, Hobbes, if you believe in Hobbes' world, and Hobbes was writing, you know, after seeing Civil War tear people apart and was very sort of scared, you can see in his writing, he just doesn't want more chaos. Um, if you believe in that argument, and many of our politicians like to scare us with narratives of, you know, you need to do this for your safety. I mean, we saw a lot of repressive laws and stuff come in after 9-11 in 2001, on the basis of protecting us from terror, um, you know, and some would argue about certain, uh, you know, laws that have come in to protect us from COVID-19 have been, um, if not relevant now, could be open to abuse in the future. 
um, because once you say you can do this to protect us for something, you know, where does it end in terms of protecting? So there is a long history of do this because you need to give up certain freedoms for your safety. The problem is Hobbes's sort of world is a very negative looking world that there is no real reason to because what is important with the social contract is they imagine a state of nature so not the world that we're living in now but the original state before there is anything before there's anything we recognize as society and what Rousseau says about Hobbes and I would agree is it doesn't seem that there's any reason that we would kill each other and have this nasty brutish and short war of all against all that Hobbes describes because in a state of nature pre-society we would have everything we need. We wouldn't have a need for competition against each other. We wouldn't have most of the motivations that would lead us to war against of all against all now that we would have. So if you took all the laws away today, you could imagine suddenly things descending into a state of sort of violence and people taking and killing each other because we've been trained all our lives that there are limited resources. It's dog eat dog, take what you can. The only way to get stuff you need is to sort of sacrifice your work, your life and give it up for work all the time. So if we give you a chance of freedom, like the purge, you know, do what you want and, and kill everyone and take what you can. But those are completely because of the social structures that we have. And if we didn't have those social structures, it's not obvious that we would act that way at all. So Rousseau says, well, actually, we would have a state of plenty in a state of nature. We wouldn't have people owning stuff. We wouldn't have all the divisions that we have. We would just absolutely be able to get on. The only thing would be we would realise, you know, that collectively there would start to be some problems and maybe some people might start at some point trying to own things or whatever. Um, we'd have to come together to figure out what the general will would be and to just make sure we can be as secure as possible. So he was still afraid of this potential for falling into insecurity, but he didn't think it would be such a, a grim picture. So it's, it's, it's interesting you sort of brought up the sort of, if we were to fall now into that sort of state of nature that Hobbes or Rousseau sort of bring up, then you could sort of expect sort of like a purged sort of like situation. But you yourself in the book write, um, because humans ultimately want their society to be safe and secure, by creating a climate of fear and paranoia, those in power who make such proclamations often find people simple enough to believe them and willing to fight these enemies in what they perceive as self-defense. As you know, Rousseau says that it was the simple minded people who sort of agreed with that first person who said yeah this is my land and it's only for myself um and what i was sort of going to ask you is that don't recent sort of protests um sort of like the black lives matter protests maybe some of the violence that came out of those or even sort of in the london riots of 2011 which was very interesting to see that like when that superstructure does fall all people want to do is sort of steal more luxuries like how do we sort of combat that sort of problem if we are ever to transition to an anarchist framework where that large scary authority of the state that someone like Hobbes would want is sort of gone away how do we ensure that we don't reduce into those sort of chaotic systems well the first thing to do is is realize that you you have an intentional narrative telling you that this is what happened in 2011 and last summer you know what we have in 2011 was police killing Mark Duggan and people uprising against the anger and frustration of years and years and years of police violence against black people in London in particular. Um, now, once that then happens, as was the case with George Floyd, yet another black person killed, yet another police officer at the time probably going to get off, although you know it turned out they didn't get off, but just another black person murdered, too many black people murdered, we are sick of it, we're fed up. 
violence comes from frustration from anger from rage lashing out you know i see it as a teacher i might be having a particularly bad day lots of classes doing lots of little things that aren't particularly annoying but like no one wants to be there it's a hot day we'd all rather be home or at the beach or something um so by the end of the day someone might do something in a lesson and i might shout at them um, or as best to shout as i do i kind of do more of a stern silent talk but whatever i do the anger that comes is not really about them at all, is it? It's about the, the day. It's about, I don't want to be here. I want to be at home. And we sometimes displace our anger. So anger about the police becomes, I'm going to smash this window. Because I can't smash the police. Because if I smash the police, I go to jail. Because we've built a society where you can't really fight back against the police. You can't even sometimes question the police because they'll say you're being insolent and try and you know arrest you for that, or talking back to an officer or something. So buildings, you know, are fairly harmless. And that's another important thing in terms of the narrative. You know, property is property. It's not people. If you smash some windows, if you take some trainers, if you take a TV, did anyone actually get hurt? People got scared in the businesses. Um, it, it's, it's property. So we're already conflating property damage with a bigger crime. So there's all kinds of narratives at play here. And then there's the second thing, which is, yes, there will be some people who take advantage of the chaos of protest and possibly you know just general frustration so let's smash a building who go well actually the police are you know distracted by this um this uprising over here so let's write let's go and take some more things the police can't handle it um and again you see this in teaching you know if, if a teacher can't control two people in a class then the rest of the class will start to misbehave as well because they realize i think we can get away with stuff we wouldn't normally get away with so in a society which is unfair inequitable and as unjust as our one where it's all about money it's all about status consumer products of course if i can get a flat screen tv for free right now in the riot because the police are distracted over there with the building that's on fire why not because i can never get this because society has literally built itself so i'll be denied the economic ab ability to do that myself in a normal work situation and they told me at the same time through advertising i should have this tv it's really important. And if I steal three of them, I can maybe sell two, maybe even sell the third one because it's only a TV and I've already got one. So there's all kinds of economic incentives and emotional, psychological incentives because of our society. And if you took those away, they wouldn't be there. If we didn't have racist and just policing, we wouldn't have the frustration in the first place. If we didn't have unjust economic systems, we wouldn't have let's grab a pair of trainers that I wouldn't normally be able to afford or that I can sell. So I think a lot of that is structural. And then on top of that, you've got the fact that the motivation is to stop the rioting from the state's point of view, from you know the media's point of view. They want life to get back to normal, get back to selling things properly for a price. So to frame legitimate political protest as violence and chaos demeans and discredits it, makes people scared from attending. You know, if you've got a popular uprising, people are going to join. People kept joining the Black Lives Matter protests. People joined the Occupy Wall Street movement. Once it becomes go there and you get beaten up by police, go there and there's riots and you might get injured, I think I'm going to stay home. So it stops people from wanting to join the movement. It discredits the movement. It shuts the movement up. And it also makes people feel guilty about saying they were there because were you there as a rioter? And if you can start talking about riots and people stealing TVs, it means we're not talking about structural injustice in policing, structural injustice of racism and all the other structural injustices. You know, there's been riots during anti-capitalist demonstrations. There were riots at Occupy Wall Street. So all the stuff about the economic system, we're not talking about that now. We're talking about 
people smashing windows and taking and, TVs. And unfortunately, that's sort of where the conversation... I, mean, I brought up the Black Lives Matter protest just so I could get that answer out of you. Because if you look at the statistics, it was what, like 97% of protests were totally peaceful. But yeah. even then, that sort of framing, that sort of need to legitimise peaceful protests is... Um, even as someone who doesn't condone violence, you don't condone people hurting each other, of course. But from a sort of... Uh, an annoyance I have with this sort of conversation about peaceful protests is that it's essentially the whole point of a protest is, as you say, to disrupt the system. It's to say this thing that you call normal is terrible. We don't want this normality. We want to change it. But the whole framing of peaceful protests is so that people like Joe Biden, these sort of center left sort of uh, liberal establishment types who don't really want radical change, but sort of play to this sort of populist angle at times can sort of maintain that, oh, look, we're going against the system, but in the most peaceful sort of milk toast way and unfortunately that's sort of how the conversation has derailed into we're no longer talking about oh how can we have reparations for sort of black lives matter how can we sort of engage with these arguments properly we're sort of saying oh if you disagree with something make sure you're peacefully protesting particularly in places like britain for example where we are very sort of um, because of the media system is wary of any sort of violence that occurs and we, we sort of like push back on it as as quickly as we possibly can yeah, I mean, it's a real problem and it's a, it's a known problem in, in all kinds of circles. And again, it's about applying some of the ideas from other areas of philosophy to uh, politics. Uh, well, this kind of politics, you know, structural changes of, of, of systems. So if you talk to like feminist philosophers, there's a lot of talk about, say, tone policing. So misogyny coming in the form of saying to a woman, if she says something that a man would say and a man would be able to say it, saying to a woman, you're not supposed to say that, you know, I didn't like your tone. And and same with racism, you know, there are certain things that your colour of your skin becomes aggressive to say in a way that a white person would be able to say it. And we're, we're aware of this idea of tone policing. And what it is, is it's a way of telling women, people of colour, you know, you, you don't have a right to speak and shutting them up when they're not meant to be shut up. You know, it's, it's, it's a form of control and oppression. And we use that across the board in politics when we say... There is a right way to protest. There is a right way to get your point across. When we talk about, you know, well, we're going to have to punish you. You know, there was that school, I can't remember the name of it now, um, in London where there was all these protests for Black Lives Matter things and uh, all the students who got involved in their protests were, you know, had to be told off because not that they, what they were saying was wrong, but the way they went about it was wrong. And you see this in schools, you see this in uh, protests. It's, it's telling you there is a right way to do it. And the right way tends to be, you know, you can protest, but arrange with the police first. Have a route that the police let you do, which is usually a non-disruptive route so that traffic and business can carry on its way. And as you said, protest is about disruption. As soon as you're engaging in that conversation, you're not actually causing disruption. And what they really are saying is, can you do this in a way that doesn't really get your message across? And then there's the fact, like I say, the media, the media don't, don't report that. I've been on many, many peaceful marches, protests and things that no one knows about. The ones that I've been on that have got in the news are the ones where there's been violence. There's also the fact there's a long history of, especially in Britain, undercover policing and agent provocateurs, um, you know, creating violence. So police themselves being the flashpoint that starts the violence or encouraging activist groups to do something violent to get them uh, in, arrested, you know, from animal rights people like the undercover police officer says we should go break into that shop and steal all their fur coats or something. To you know, my own experience of being in a riot in in London in 1999 was watching police needlessly kettle us in and then run over a girl, um, and then go, well, why did everyone get so angry and start attacking the police? Well, because 
you for no reason kettled us in and then ran over a person. So, you know, and, and sprayed um, whatever it is, mace That's or a whatever. really good point to bring up because I think before the sort of 2020 protests, that was sort of almost conspiratorial to sort of bring up. Um, but with all the video evidence of the police doing that, I mean, here in Bristol with the kill the bill protests, I mean, like before that, like, like, I mean, maybe 10 years ago, if you had sort of said that, people would say, oh, you're a crazy lefty loony. But like, it really is true. The police in the state um, work against these protests. And that, again, maybe legitimizes your point of democracy, that when it comes to people disagreeing with the uh, people in power, the powers that be, you do get this backlash from the state. The, so the state isn't almost um a representation of the people but it's its own sort of alienated entity that acts in its own interests 